0: Good morning, friends. For those who just arrived, my name is David. Uh, I'm the pastor of of Storefront. So good to be with you this morning. We're glad that you're here. Excuse me. Uh, As perhaps you know, we're in in a season that's called Lent. And Lent is that season in the Christian liturgical calendar in which churches look towards the cross as we prepare ourselves for Easter. And I've been saying that, this is a season where we get to do something that the disciples actually never got to do. And that is, is we get to know why we're going to Jerusalem. We're going towards the cross. And because we know what took place on the cross, that it, it, on the cross we experienced um, uh, through Jesus' freedom and safety and, and joy. Uh, we actually get to go to a place that we don't want to go, but we go gladly. We get to go gladly, and today we're going to look at a passage uh, that takes place as Jesus and his disciples are going to the cross, and we're probably going to talk about two things that many of us don't want to talk about. One is a miracle, and the other is division within the church that's based on that particular miracle, and maybe we don't want to talk about it, or it's just something that we, we're we not very interested in because those are the kinds of things that have have really left people leaving the church you know i don't necessarily believe in supernatural things and the divisiveness of the church or the divisiveness within religious communities is such a turnoff or i've been so wounded by that that i'm not interested in even looking at those particular subjects either but in the same way that we looked at the cross we can look to this passage with hope because in the middle of these these this passage and discussing these two ideas Jesus says that the glory of God is revealed. The glory of God is revealed in the midst of the darkness of broken lives and the darkness of divisive communities. We learn that it's there where the light of Christ shines brightest. And so I invite you just to come with me and to see as we look at this miracle, which is the miracle in which a man who's born blind is given sight, and as we ponder on this text, which is a long text, I would I would invite you to consider that in the same way that he's given sight, and he's he's caused to, to believe that that can be true for us too, that we can come to a greater understanding about who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world, and is this a God that you can actually not just trust, but fall in love with and worship. So join me in this 2,000-year-old text from John 9. This is 1 through 41. So get comfortable. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still, did, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How, how is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age and he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth, they said. We know this man, being Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How, d- how did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you do not listen. Why do, you want to he- why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are his fellows. Dis- you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, he listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult things, and yet in many ways, it's such a simple story, and we recognize ourselves, perhaps, in this. We recognize our needs in this. We recognize our own culture in these things, and so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that as you would minister to us here, that your glory would be revealed. We'd have greater clarity, Lord, but we'd also have a vision of our lives in which our lives would give you the glory that is worthy of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, mission drift. Mission drift is is a real thing. If you're familiar with that term, mission drift is often used in organizational development uh, conversations. And that's the idea that any organization can begin uh, with a particular focus and direction, but over time, because of changing circumstances, maybe new voices on a team or there's attrition on the team or there's extenuating circumstances in the culture or, or you know typhoons happen, whatever, that that corporation begins to move from one uh, one degree to the right or one to uh, degree to the left. It's called mission drift. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? but What happens is, is if you move from one degree to the right or to the left, a thousand miles down the road, you end up being in a very different place than the one you had intended to be, and you're a very different organization or culture than you had hoped to start with, right? So mission drift is something that all startups talk about. It happens to everybody, Um, institutions, churches, families. It happens within our own beings. And it would happen to the disciples had it not been for the laser focus of Jesus. Jesus has a mission about his life. It says there at the beginning, as he was walking or walking by, but we should never get the, the impression of Jesus that he is drift, drifting or drifting or driftless, that he's drifting in his own mission. But he has this laser focus to get to the cross, to bring about salvation, to set the world right with God. And you see that very clearly. There's a first. Let's keep going. And you see that really clearly in at the beginning of this passage uh, in John 8, which we didn't read. Jesus is having a very difficult conversation with with, uh, a bunch of scholars, and it's so difficult, and his claims are so staggering that it says that they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And the very next verse it says, And he went along, and as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And what I want us to see is that is... is is. Dangerous, as volatile as the ministry of Jesus was, he was absolutely laser focused on bringing on healing and helping those that nobody sees. He's absolutely laser focused on healing and helping those that nobody sees. And that's the mission of the church in many ways. And so so as we look at this passage, as we think about the glory of God being displayed in our lives, I think we need to consider Jesus and embrace what he embraces and recognize that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're sent to work, you're sent to share, and you're sent to you're sent to separate. What does that mean? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are sent to work, you're sent to share, and you're sent to separate. Okay? First, You're sent to work. Now, few things communicate what we think and believe more than the things that we actually do, right? Few things communicate what we think and believe inside than the things that we actually do with our hands and our feet. We all have um, theological positions, whether we actually recognize that or not. We all have points of view. We all hold to particular theories in our lives. Maybe it's uh, overt or maybe it's subconscious. But the things that we, but the way we interact with the world, how we interact with those around us actually tell the world what we truly believe. And so here's Jesus, and he's walking with these disciples, and he sees this man who's born with blindness. And something interesting occurs. And I think there's two lessons here in this little first snippet. They see this man born from blindness, or Jesus sees him and they see what Jesus sees, and immediately they have a theological discussion. Now, there's some content in the theological discussion that's actually really important, but just as important is what we can learn from their response to seeing somebody who's in need. So they have this theological discussion, and you see it there. In verse 2, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus gives a very definitive answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this, and here's my parenthetical like so many other things in life, happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So, just going back to this original premise. Who sinned, this this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In ancient cultures, it was often thought that if he had a mental or physical disability, then somebody or someone, something was to blame. Was it you? Was it your parents? Was it your culture? That physical or mental disabilities was a kind of punitive retribution on that particular individual. You went through the wrong door in life. You chose the wrong relationship. You said the wrong thing. You wronged the wrong person in a karmic way. And therefore, you're cursed like this. And so Jesus addresses this. And of course, let me back up a second. Those sound like primitive ideas, but they're not so primitive. In a a way, we fear those same fears when terrible things happen to us. We ask, why, how did this take place? And so those aren't primitive ideas, though they can seem like it in this ancient text. But we can fear those same fears. We can hold on to those same superstitions. We can look for someone to blame. But Jesus is super clear. He says, this man's blindness was not because of his sin or his parents' sin. Mental or physical disabilities are not a punishment. But what Jesus is saying it, with that verse is, he says, he's in a sense saying, "But I'm here now." And whether it is this man's blindness, or that man in a tree, or this woman at a well, or the conversation I'm going to have over dinner, or the person I'm going to meet on the road, all of these occasions are opportunities for the glory of God to to shine through. That the light of the world can shine out of this dark experience that's what i'm all about that's my mission that's my focus it's the same in every conversation that he has as long as it is day he says to the disciples we must do the works of him who sent me and that is another another way of saying it is my father sent me to bring glory in every situation no matter how big nor small no matter how impossible these people did This man is not blind because of his own sin or the sins of his parents. So what does he begin to do? Um, Well, so that's what we can learn from that particular exchange. But what do we learn from their responses? The disciples are still growing. The disciples see this man who's blind, who's... Whole world has come undone because he lacks agency now, because he lacks um, dignity in the culture, because I think it's intimated his family, and there's uh, a distance between he and his family. He's a burden on the community. So it's not just that God heals his, or Jesus heals his sight. He restores his entire life. Right? He restores his entire life. But the disciples, they see him as a theological puzzle to solve. They see him as a case study. Huh, let's talk about this. This is fascinating. How did this man get to be blind? Let's talk about sin and the the human heart. And let's talk about, let's go sit over a a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. Let's have a, a Bible study. Let's just stop now and we'll go have a Bible study and talk about this. And there are times and places for all of that, of course. But Jesus, in a sense, has the briefest conversation about a very in-depth subject because he wants to get to work. He wants to begin healing this man. And of all the miracles in the New Testament, this is the most work-like. You know, oftentimes Jesus feeds the 5,000, but you don't see him like in the supernatural ki- kitchen cooking everything up, right? These things just sort of happen. It's like a sleight of hand in some sense, or it's a word that he speaks. But this miracle, he purposely begins to create. This is a an act of recreation. He's not just healing his sight, he's restoring his entire universe so what does he do he gets down (laughs) into the dirt he spits into the dirt and he gets his hands dirty and he begins to mold and make clay if you will you can almost like hear him breathing and grunting as he's creating some paste to begin to rub on this man's eyes the way that some great sculptor would work with his sculpture. And then he says to the man, now go to Sil- Siloam, which means scent, and wash in that water, and you'll have sight. And so that's exactly what he does. He goes and he has sight. Now when Jesus is doing this, I'm not 100% sure what people on the ground are seeing but I know what we're meant to see. Jesus is is recreating the creation of the world. He's saying this world is so broken that I'm not just come come here to do tricks. I've come as the chosen one, as the Messiah, as the light of God, which is another term to say, I'm God coming in the flesh. And I am going to, my work with this particular man I'm going to do for all of creation. That's what I'm about. That's where we're going. And so he goes to Siloam, this blind man, washes. And the term Siloam means scent. And he comes out and he has sight for the first time. Now, I know you guys don't do this, but sometimes I can go on these like YouTube rabbit trails. And there's some of these where you see um, you see people who are, have, who are colorblind put on glasses that actually give them, enable them to see color for the first time. And you can just imagine when he washes that away, and for the first time, he's able to see. And if you go on YouTube and you watch some of these things, college kids and friends, high school kids, old people, young people, everybody they're restored. And their emotions go all over the place, laughing, crying. Um, It's so beautiful to watch. It's just transformation. And so I I imagine that whenever he thinks of this Siloam, this body of water, knowing it's called sent, that in his own heart, he's saying, God, God sent this man to do a work in me. And now I am being sent to share with the world about his work. So the first thing that we learn, if we have the laser focus of Christ, so weird, is, is is that if we want to embrace or if we want to display the glory of God in the world, then we need to embrace the reality that you're sent to work. We're sent to work, do redemptive, restorative, creative work. Second is we're meant to share about that work. This man now goes and and he shares. And when I say he's sent to share, what I mean is he's sent to tell the truth about what Jesus did to him. He's meant to share the truth about what Jesus did for him. And all of a sudden, everything begins to unravel, tensions begin to mount, his own people are not sure if it's actually him or not uh is there a body double the religious leaders come in they enact this investigation they meet with this man two or three times and each time they keep asking him to doubt jesus to distance himself from jesus to explain all that he knows about jesus and eventually because all he can say is i i I was blind and now I see. I won't recant this guy because I don't know enough about him to recant. They end up kicking him out of the church. But that's the cost, right? Tensions mount. It's very uncomfortable for him. But he's sent to share, and he's sent to share the truth. Um, one of the primary ways that we display the glory of God is to just share the truth of Jesus's work in your life. Let me just say it this way. If you're a Christian, one of the primary ways that you display the glory of God is to share your simple story in the world. If you're not a Christian, one of the ways that Christians share their display the glory of God is not talking about themselves or having all the answers to every theological question. It's simply to share a very basic story about themselves in which they actually don't know all the answers. That's an act of faith. We're meant to share our stories as an act of faith. We're meant to share this truth. The irony here in John 9, 24 through 25, it's in him being grilled by these Pharisees, the religious leaders, that they actually say the way to to reveal the glory of God. This is the second time they summoned the man who had been blind give glory to God by telling the truth they said we know this man is a sinner he replied whether this he is a sinner or not I don't know one thing I do know I was blind but now I see and I'm just going to land on this one thing I do know one thing I do know five times this guy or his parents say their answer to the interrogation is, I don't know. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he did to our son. I don't know. Ask him, he's of age. I don't know. One of the as a pastor, one of the greatest fears that I see in my friends and I know in my own heart is that when I want to talk about Jesus, I am deathly afraid. I'm paralyzed. That somebody's going to ask me something about him that I cannot answer saying I don't know is a very faithful, godly, honest, and powerful answer to those kinds of questions that come. Because you're really saying, it's not about me and my intellectual apologetics for you. I can only say what took place in me from him. See, when we come and we're so smooth and whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have whatever your worldview is and you come and it's so perfectly articulate and and, uh, culturally astute and so on and so forth, you're giving glory to yourself often. That's why I'm afraid because I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to look primitive and naive so I come prepared, hopefully. Or I don't say anything at all. And nobody, and he doesn't get the glory, and no light is shown, and nobody gets to encounter Jesus in that way. So, so he says five times. I don't know what he is in, a, in effect saying is, I am the evidence for Jesus. My transformative life is the evidence of Jesus. Blaise Pascal says something about the human being. He says, you know. He compares human beings to reeds. He gets that from the book of Isaiah. he says, human beings are reeds, but we're thinking reeds. And a reed in the in the Old Testament is like the ultimate form of frailty. Weather knocks it out, somebody can trample on a on a reed. It's so flimsy and frail. And he's saying human beings in all of the cosmos are so flimsy and frail. The the universe can can crush a, a reed and never even know. That it did it but he said human beings are thinking reeds which says that human beings are the most noble being in all of the universe because we have the ability to think we have the ability to recognize that we are um we have the ability to recognize how our lives are going and what's the state of our soul and are there things bigger than this and though the universe can just stamp us out we have we're thinking beings and therefore we can go I know the universe is crushing me. I know, I know that this unthinking entity uh, is, is taking me out. But I was made for something more. One thing I know. I was made for the glory of God. So we're sent to work and we're sent to share and not sent to know every answer. The Christian life, I would put it this way, is a visceral experience. It is not less than thought, but it's so much more. That miracle was a visceral miracle. Not less than thought, but it's so much more. It's a lived experience before others, confident in the work that he's done, but without having all the answers. He was sent to share This man, he was forced to share, but he was glad to share because the restoration and the transformation that he he experienced was actually real. Um, One of the pieces of evidence that I find fascinating, and I think it's very practical for us, is that when when he comes to his Parents and they're, as you would and I would be staggered. And as his neighbors and his friends begin to wonder, is this actually him? I think there's a lesson for us to learn. When transformation takes place, you very well may appear different to those who are closest to you. I mean, just think about a man who now was blind and now can see a whole world is coming through his eyes a whole personality, a whole point of view. You know, its it would change a person. But I also think it meant that this person, because he was such a reed in the world, was never really looked at, was never really seen. And so when we go out into the world to, to share, we are in many ways saying, but Jesus saw me when others didn't that Jesus helped me when others wouldn't, that Jesus healed me because others simply couldn't. I was blind, and now I see. Friends, if you share your faith with me, you're a Christian. Do you trust your story? Do you trust your story enough to live as a witness, readily readily admitting that you don't know everything, but you hope to bring greater glory to God, and you hope to grow in your own understanding do you remember uh we were talking about this uh this week the woman at the well the woman at the well uh, encountered Jesus and she has he changed her life and she runs back to the town that she is uh a pariah in in which she has all of these fractured relationships in which she doesn't want to be uh a so or she doesn't She's afraid to be seen or associated with these people. That's why she goes to the well in the middle of the day. And after encountering Jesus, she runs back and she wants to talk to anybody she'll meet about Jesus. She says, he told me everything I ever knew, right? She paraphrases what took place in that. She paraphrases her story. What she doesn't come in and say is, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Corazon. She doesn't come in and and quote scripture and and cast judgment on others. She simply just comes and tells her very basic story. Do you know your story? Do you have a story? Do you share your story with others? And for those who struggle to believe, where's the place in your life that if God met you there, if God healed you there, you would share it with the world. That's a conversation to have with him. He sees you. He sees you where when nobody else sees you. He can do for you what nobody else can do for you. So, sent to work to display the glory of God, sent to share to display the glory of God, and then sent to separate for the glory of God, and that may not mean what you think I'm going to say. One of the reasons that people really are disgusted with organized religions, and rightly so, is because there is so much unnecessary division and separation. There's so much conflict within the church, and Jesus comes, and when he talks about bringing separation, bringing division, as he talks about bringing judgment, What we have to remember is, is that division and separation already existed, that it was already a part of that culture, it was a part of every culture, and he's coming in, and he's, he is, um, he's coming in, and he's recognizing that there's divisions in the community that are based around power dynamics and social economic issues, but ultimately, Jesus is saying, I've come to recognize that there's spiritual division in the world. That we're blind to. And I've come, he says in verse 39, Jesus says, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will see be, will become blind. And so the division or separation that Jesus comes to bring is not between conservatives or liberals or rich or poor, but the difference that he wants us to see and to embrace Is the difference between the new creation and the old? He comes to make distinct and separate the difference between the status quo of a broken world that's in rebellion to God, where people are just case studies, where people are never seen or they're rejected. He's trying to make a distinction and make a separation between that world and the kingdom of God, where those who are rejected are now pursued that they're chased after and they're brought in. This man had one of the great encounters with God and his life was changed. We're talking about him today, 2,000 years later and on a different continent. One of the great things that ever happened to a person, this man, it happened to him and his religious community kicked him out because they couldn't, they couldn't, except that God might do things a little bit different than their own tradition. We must never, ever fall into that. Jesus comes to make separation between uh, spiritual sight and and the spiritually blind. Do you see that in this passage? Or when you read this passage, are you dialoguing with that inner Pharisee in you? That's saying, I don't know if I can get wrap my head around this. This is an old story. It's a different time. It's a different place. It's a different culture. Are we standing in judgment that way? Or are we noticing the spiritual growth that is happening in the man who's been transformed? And we'll just wrap up with this. Notice that this man, who doesn't even have a name continues to grow closer and closer towards the light. In verse 9 through 11, it says Jesus to him is just a man. In verse 17, Jesus is a prophet. In verse 27, Jesus is his master, and he has become his disciple. In verses 33, it says, Jesus says that, this man says that Jesus is from God. In John 9, 9, 35, and 38 this man says that Jesus is the Son of God. And verses, in verse 38, he says, Jesus, this son of man, who is the son of God, is the one in whom I trust. You see the separation, right? It's the separation that divide that can uh unite people from all walks of life around a central idea about a God who pursu- pursues those who have been rejected about a God who sees those that nobody sees. You see this man in an instant is given sight, but over a series of very difficult conversations that probably took weeks, this man begins to grow and grow. He begins to bloom before our very eyes. This is the God of Jesus Christ. This is the God who... Who that makes displays of his glory in places that nobody else would think to look? What would it, what would it be if we were a community like that, that really knew that we were sent to work for this end, for this end and no other? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we want to be challenged by your word, and and we thank you that you do that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in the time where, you know, we all feel like we want to grow and meet our potential. What does it look like to go grow because we've met our maker? And he defines how we're called to live. Lord, would you teach us these things in Jesus' name? Amen. This is an opportunity to continue to worship. Um, It's an opportunity to give of your heart, of your mind, but also of your gifts. Let's continue to worship as we do that.